about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Uh, well, today we begin a new ser- sermon series on the first chapters of the book of Genesis. Uh, the first chapters of the Bible. Uh, These chapters are a familiar part of the Bible. A lot of people know something or other about the story of Adam and Eve and the snake and the apple and so on. One of the reasons for this, there are lots of reasons, but one of the reasons for this is that uh, probably the most famous poem ever written in English, Milton's Paradise Lost, um, tells a story of these chapters in epic scale, tracing in fine detail the angelic backstory to what they record and providing answers to all the questions the text leaves hanging. And a lot of those questions have just seeped into culture and popular culture and and assumptions, a lot of those answers, sorry. But that can actually mean the text itself is not that well understood or studied. It wasn't, no. Um, Do you know it wasn't an apple, for example? It wasn't an apple, and we know next to nothing about the snake. When you get into them, these chapters are actually stranger and more interesting than we expect. Now, the importance of these chapters can be overstated. Uh, They aren't the only thing the Bible has to say about the world or its origins. Maybe not even the most important thing or about sin and about humanity. But for all that, they are still important. They teach us foundational things about the world we live in, what is wrong with it, and the task set before us. These chapters were important for Jesus' teaching, as we'll see in the coming weeks, and they remain foundational for Christian thinking in all sorts of ways. Now, looking at these chapters is going to lead us into controversial areas over the coming weeks and probably today. I plan to be even-handed, though. Uh, There will be things to irritate both the right and the left. I plan to talk about both climate change and sex, for example. I expect this series will raise questions, and I welcome that. Uh, We've got two question times planned outside Sundays to give space for more discussion, Monday, August the 7th in the evening, and uh, Sunday, September the 3rd. If you want to ask some questions, we'll be advertising those. But, you know, my main hope as we read these chapters is that we will be genuinely helped, helped to find clarity in the midst of confusion and to renew our faith because Christian faith has always been and must always be faith in the God who is the maker of the heavens and the earth. In the book of Revelation, the heavenly creatures cry out, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things. And by your will they were created and have their being. And you know, we, we take those words up every time we share the Lord's Supper in the communion liturgy. Because to be a Christian is to believe in the maker of heaven and earth. And my hope is that that confession will mean more to us at the end of this series than at the beginning. 
Well, let's begin then. We begin by listening afresh to the first half of the famous opening chapter, which we'll continue looking at next week. Now, the clicker has just failed, which is going to be... Oh, no, there we go. It's working again. Praise God. Um, I'm going to pray, and then Anna, come up, and you, you can read the Bible. Can you get her the microphone, Kath? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these wonderful opening chapters, and we pray that as we read them and think about them, you would give, give your blessing to us and show us yourself and teach us how to live in this world and to admire it as we should. For Christ's sake, amen. Thanks, Anna. Good evening, everyone. As Andrew has mentioned, today's Bible reading comes from Genesis chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 to 19. Um, it's in the handouts that you were given as you walked in, uh, or it's on page 1 of any Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and he gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit with seed in it, according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. Oops, sorry, I forgot a prop. When I was a child, my father and mother 
gave me this book. It's called Universe by Heather Cooper and David Pelham. Uh, it's, it's really great. Uh, it's a pop-up book about the physics of the universe. Uh, it begins... Did anybody else have this book? A couple of people. That's so cool. It, it begins with this incredible page. And I'll give you... I'll put it on the screen as well because it's like cool if there's a light source behind it. Um, and it's got like timelines and stuff. Um, it also opens with these words that fold out from the side. I'll show you how they do it, but I'll put them on the screen. Probably can't read them from there. These are the words. In the beginning was the Big Bang. And today, everything we see around us owes its existence to this awesomely powerful act of creation. Planets, stars, galaxies, and human beings alike can trace their origins to a common, violent birth. The pop-up section then gives a timeline of what happened. One second, three minutes, 300,000 years, and so on, right down to 14.4 billion years, or whatever it is, in life today, after the Big Bang. I think if you asked many modern Australians to tell you the origin story of our world, Something like this is the story they'd tell. They might not know that it took 11 billion years for the first single-celled life to appear on Earth, but they'd probably say something about the Big Bang and then about evolution. Now, I want to say right up front that I think... Hello. I think this story is probably mostly true. What did you think I was going to say? Christians do disagree about this, and I don't want to kind of squash that in hurriedly, but I think this story is probably mostly true. I understand there is good scientific evidence for many of the different parts of the story, and I have no good reason to dispute it. Of course, you might think that what we've just read in the Bible would be a reason to dispute it. I don't think so, though, and I'll come back to why in a bit. But before I do that, I want us to notice something. I want us to pay attention to this modern creation story. And what I want us to notice is that it leaves a bunch of questions unanswered. What the story tells us is a lot about how we got here today. It tells us the material story of our origins, things like the role played by hydrogen and helium nuclei, the formation of quasars, the evolution of life into complex forms, and so on. But a bunch of other questions are just left without an answer. The story doesn't tell us, for example, why we are here in any deeper, more significant sense. Right? Because the question why can be asked in different ways. If I ask, why is there mold on this sandwich? One answer might be because the humidity and the warmth was sufficient for the spores to grow. That would be true. And that's the kind of answer this story about the Big Bang and evolution tell. But another answer to this question that question, why is there mold on the sandwich? And probably a more important answer would be because you left it in your lunchbox over the school holidays. 
adds a little window onto my Tuesday morning, perhaps. But that kind of bigger why question, actually it doesn't have an answer in the scientific story. That dimension of the question why is not on the table. Knowing that things began in this physics, you know, in this astrophysical way, and knowing that things evolved perhaps in that way, even if all that's true, it doesn't tell us in the deeper sense why we are here. Thinking, conscious beings in this beautiful cosmos, it doesn't tell us what we're meant to do. It doesn't tell us why everything is so freighted with goodness and care. It also doesn't tell us why it happened in the first place. Why was there a Big Bang? Why is there anything at all? Did you notice that my book used the language of act of creation to describe the Big Bang? Did you notice that? This, this awesomely powerful act of creation. Josh, feel free to let the cat stay or take it out. Either way. Um, the book uses this language of an act of creation. Does, that, does an act imply an actor, an agent? Does creation imply a creator? Can we really infer those things? Well, this scientific how it happens story simply cannot say. Can't give you the answer to that. And at this point, there are two ways we can go. One way we can go is to admit these limits of scientific explanation, and we can let it open the door to wisdom from other sources. And this is what many scientists I know do. And I was pleasantly surprised this week to discover that the book my parents gave me does it as well. Uh, I didn't know this, but I rediscovered it. Here is what, on the second fold-out section, it says. A scientist cannot answer the question, what was there before the Big Bang? Space and time alike were both born then, before time did not exist. There was no yardstick by which to record any events. The question of the universe's conception, as opposed to its birth, is then a matter for philosophers and theologians. In the end, there is no conflict between science and religion. You see, this is one way we can go to recognize that what science tells us about how we got here leaves a lot of big questions unanswered. And to admit the importance of these questions and let it open us up to learning from other sources of wisdom. It is possible not to do this, though. It is possible to go a different way and to refuse this openness to other forms of knowledge than the scientific. What we can say is, we can say is what, what science shows us, that's all there is. It's the only explanation we can have of anything, and so the question, why is there anything at all, it, it actually just doesn't mean anything. There just is what there is. That kind of full-blown materialism, it is actually a real option. But it does have big consequences. Big consequences for the way we see things. We can see some of these in a poem called Disorientation by the relatively well-known astrophysicist Katie Mack. Anybody know Katie Mack? Heard of her? You can follow her on Twitter. She's pretty interesting. Uh, and, and obviously 
unbelievably clever person. Um, sometimes it's worth being cautious about poems by physicists, but uh, this is good. This is good. The poem begins by saying, I want to make you dizzy. I want to make you look up into the sky and comprehend maybe for the first time the darkness that lies beyond the evanescent wisp of the atmosphere, the endless depths of the cosmos, a desolation by degrees. And then it goes on to talk about how the blood in our veins is of the same stuff as the dunes of Mars and so on. And then towards the end there is this stanza. There's Katie Mack looking at the sky. I want you to believe that the universe is a vast, random, uncaring place in which our species, our world, has absolutely no significance. And I want you to believe that the only response is to make our own beauty and meaning and to share it while we can. And the poem ends with a kind of bracing wonder that human beings are of the cosmos, stardust returning to stardust, quote, a way for the universe to be in awe of itself. Now that does have a kind of austere beauty to it, I think. The thing is, though, that's not the only response. She says, I want you to see that this is the only response, but it's not. That's not the only response you can have to the conclusion that human life and this world have no significance. It's also possible for that to make you despair and to feel only that it actually sucks the meaning out of everything because it does to believe that it's only an extraordinary cosmic accident that we are here conscious and full of care about things and that the only meaning and beauty are those we make for ourselves that radically undermines every claim, every claim, that something is truly good or truly wrong. It leaves you constantly putting a mental question mark over our instinct that things matter, that how we live matters, and that we're here for a reason. Actually, not many people I know find this materialist answer livable. And so many people today do find themselves reaching out for other forms of wisdom to ancient and modern philosophical perspectives. Did you know Stoicism is back in a big way? To Eastern religions such as Buddhism, to indigenous creation stories perhaps. And it's because the wider questions of existence, the, the why, the deeper why questions, they just seem to need more explanation than the how it happened story can give us. Well, friends, it is the purpose of the opening chapter of Genesis to give us an explanation, to tell us why we are here, not just in a material sense, but in the deepest sense. The sense that shows us the meaning and purpose of life. It tells us that we are not an insignificant cosmic accident, but we are here, however we've got here, we are here, all things are here because we are creatures. The objects of an act of creation that was free and purposeful and joyful.
This text deserves our close attention, not just because it's a famous part of the Bible, but because it is radical in what it says. And it answers questions that we need answers to. Before we get into this further, though, it's important just to clarify, and this will just take a little bit, but we'll survive, what this means for how we should read Genesis chapter 1. Uh, again, this is an area that people disagree about. All I can do is explain to you how I believe we should read it. Because the creation account in Genesis is focused on wider, more spiritually important questions than the material question of how it all happened... I think we should understand it not as being in competition with the scientific account, but as providing a complementary perspective. Not in competition, but complementary. The purpose of Genesis is simply not to provide an account of the physical origins of things that's com that can be compared with and that is in competition with modern scientific accounts. To ask Genesis to do that is actually totally anachronistic. It's to ask an ancient text to think about things that nobody in the ancient world ever thought about, as far as we can tell. Today, we are almost automatically interested in the kind of scientific how it happened questions, because that's what science has taught us to be interested in, and they are super interesting much more closely on giving us an account of what resulted, what kind of world we live in, and why it is here at all. Now, why do I say this? I say it for a couple of reasons. The first is that the Genesis account is simply not focused on questions of physical material origins. Um, in his great book, The Lost World of Adam and Eve, there's a picture of it, by a guy called John Walton. I'll read the quote in a second. Uh, he explains that ancient creation accounts were generally focused not on questions of material origins, but on questions of function. They were in, what they wanted to know was not how things got there, but how they worked. He points out that Genesis chapter 1 actually doesn't tell a story of things coming into being. It tells a story of order being brought out of chaos. Uh, did you notice that it begins in verse 2 with, quote, the earth formless and void and darkness over the surface of the deep. In the imagery, there is actually stuff there. There's the deep, chaos, this expanse, vast expanse of water. And what then happens is that Order appears as distinctions are made. Walton says, and I think he's right, there is just a lack of material focus in the seven-day account in Genesis. Uh, I encourage you to read this book if you're really interested and want to follow it up. Um, at the same time, he goes on later, he says, the text is pervaded by an interest in order and function. Not only is this evident in the text of Genesis, it is also the primary way that cosmologies, that means kind of accounts of how the world is, um, in the ancient world talk about origins. It is the dominant way that people think about existence and origins in the ancient world. We have to be willing to set aside the culturally determined presupposition that origin accounts are essentially material. Right? What he's saying there is that 
our question of how did we get here is just a different kind of question to what origin accounts in the ancient world tended to ask. They tended to ask a question more like, why do things work the way they do? Um, and that difference just, just matters, right? It, it means that Genesis 1 is not very interested in the scientific questions that dominate our thinking. It's much more occupied with accounting for, if I can put it this way, the moral and spiritual character of the world. That is the bigger why questions we've been talking about. So that's the first reason. The second reason that Genesis 1 shouldn't be read, I don't think, in competition with the modern scientific story is that the text actually assumes an ancient picture of the world without seeking to change it much. The most obvious example of this is in the picture we see in verses 6 and 7. Uh, did you notice you've got a picture there in which um, the creation of the sky happens in order to separate the waters. So there's the sky is made as a vault or a dome and it separates waters above and waters below. Here's an image, uh, a drawing of this quite common ancient cosmological picture. You've got um, the earth which sits above the Tehom Rabah, which is the great deep, and then you've also got waters above the dome, the firmament. That's the kind of and that's a relatively common ancient cosmological picture. And it's there because it rains from the sky, right? So there's water up there. And if you dig down far enough, there's water down there too. And actually, how the heck would any of us know any better without a lot of things we take for granted? Telescopes, you know, books about science. In Genesis 1 just assumes this ancient picture without really seeking to modify it. Now, we know that's not right, right? Like, there is not an expanse of water in space. But Genesis 1's not very interested in that because what it does, the interest of the text is not in arguing for that picture of the world, but in taking it, assuming it, and then using that to characterise the world we're in. Genesis doesn't argue for this ancient picture of the cosmos. It assumes it in order to use it to teach us to admire the world we live in and to understand our place and purpose within it. To understand how it's meant to work and what God wanted out of it. Okay, so how should we read this chapter? I am saying, and again, let me say, I understand people disagree about this, I just want to make it clear how I think we should read it. Um, I'm saying not as an answer to scientific questions that we easily bring to it. And so in competition with the Big Bang and evolution and so on, I think it's much more a complementary account. It's more like a poetic account than a scientific account, if you like, of why the world is the way it is. The seven days... Considered now, they're like a poetic device used to show the kind of world God has brought into being and to give us the answer to questions that really matter to us. Not the process by which the physical world came to exist, but why things are the way they are in the deeper sense. Recall the analogy I used before about the mouldy sandwich. Science tells us about the biology of mould. Actually, in the morning, 
there was a scientist who pointed out the way I said it in the morning was wrong. And she said, you said bacteria, it's actually spores. But I have corrected that this evening, so I've got it right, because a scientist told me. Science tells us about the biology of the mould. Genesis tells us about the person who left it in the lunchbox, if I can put it that way. That's not a good analogy, but it's good enough. There are going to be points at which these accounts will bump into each other and create points of tension, but they aren't fundamentally in competition. Okay. Well then, what does it teach us? We've come a rather long road to get to that question, haven't we? Uh, you'll be pleased that the introduction to the sermon is now over. Don't worry. We have next week as well to think about this first chapter. Next week, I plan to think about what we learn here about the nature of the world we live in and our task as human beings. For the remainder of this week, I want to just notice three simple, quite quick, but profound things that this account shows us. First, that the fact that there is a God who created the world. Second, the way he creates in this account. And third, the sheer grace of creation. So first, notice the basic and most important claim in this account. There is a God who created the world in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. Those words are so familiar to so many people that we can fail, appreci we can fail to appreciate how big a deal it is to know that. There is a God who created the world, one God, not many. And one God, an agent, an actor, a personal reality of some kind who is other than what he created. You know, it's really possible to believe something different. Many other creation accounts, including those in the ancient world of Genesis, they speak of many gods, often fighting or struggling with one another. On the other hand, it's possible to believe that God is not someone or something other than the universe, but actually an element or dimension of the universe or a different perspective on the universe. We can believe that God and the universe are one reality seen from alternate perspectives. Now, that might seem very abstract, but it is an old idea that has real traction today. The philosopher Baruch Spinoza articulated it when he said that there is ultimately only one infinitely and necessarily existing reality called God or nature. Same thing, he said. Because it is impossible, Spinoza said, that there should be any substance other than God. There is simply God who is identical with nature. That might seem, again, as I say, might seem complex, but let me tell you, there are echoes and versions of this idea everywhere today. It's there in a lot of Western versions of Buddhism. You can hear it in the way people speak about the universe as a spiritual intelligence. You can see it in many forms of contemporary spirituality. But Genesis says... That is false. That's false. Because God is not just another name for reality. 
for the universe. The universe is God's creation. God is not distant from the world, but he is not himself the world. We see the perfect image of this. Did you notice in verse 2 where we hear that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters? That is an image of the Creator's presence to creation, ready to go to work, yet still different from the creation itself. Close, intimate, but distinct. You see, the opening sentence of the Bible teaches us what it means to believe in God. A personal agent beyond and before all being who is the maker of heaven and earth. In the second place, notice, won't you, the way God creates in this account. Freedom, power, peace, and purpose. He creates not with struggle and great effort and great difficulty, but simply by his command. Verse 3, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. Feel the freedom and power in the drumbeat of this chapter. Let there be. And it was so. That's a black hole, we think. The Bible marvels at this. Psalm 33. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. We can talk about the birth of stars through you know, the different processes by which that happened. But underneath that, the Bible says, is the word of the Lord commanding them to be. Feel also the peace and purpose in God's command that things should be. Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And it was so. Verse 14. The peace and perfect command of God as he creates. That's an image from the Webb telescope, by the way. They stand out incredibly starkly, actually, when compared to the other creation stories we know of from the ancient Near Eastern world. In these other stories, the world and humans often come into being as the gods fight or have sex or get bored. In the Babylonian Enuma Elish, the world is formed when Marduk defeats Tiamat in battle and cuts her in half. In the Atrahasis epic, humanity is formed as a way of resolving a class struggle between greater and lesser gods. Basically, the lesser gods are sick of doing the boring work, and so they, end, they resolve this by creating humanity to do the boring work. Bummer. In the Egyptian Heliopolis myth, the world comes into being as the gods have sex and give birth, and masturbate and things. It's kind of R-rated creation myth. Contrast Genesis. 
let there be. And it was so. Creation is not an accident, an uneasy settlement, a disappointing byproduct. It springs into being exactly as it is commanded by a Lord whose power and freedom are perfect. And so in the third place, existence itself, being itself, is sheer grace. Hear the second drumbeat of this passage. And God saw that it was good. The Creator let something good be. Creation, existence, is a free gift. It is His gift of being. Let there be. The Creator God gives the gift of being to reality other than Himself, utterly freely, utterly generously. He did not have to let things be. You and I and this world and the vast infinity of stars did not have to exist. We are not inevitable or necessary. We are contingent. We exist by God's gift, by his sheer grace to let us be. You know, the Big Bang, I think, whatever you think of that, it, it's a brilliant illustration of this. Out of nothing, bang, things come to be. Why? There's no obvious explanation other than the Creator willed that these things should come into being. Do you know, at the very end of the Bible, God is still bringing forth praise. I pointed out the words at the beginning. In the book of Revelation, the heavenly creatures, they praise God and they say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. And we take up these words in the communion service because we will always owe God that praise as his creatures. To give it, actually, is our first and most important task in life. Because our existence, our, our being, is his sheer gift. How can we fail to praise him for it? Friends, to praise God, to worship him, is, is not something we might think about trying. Something that might add to our lives, like trying to Pilates or a grain-free diet. It's not something the church should be grateful to have from us. It is our first and most basic responsibility in life. That's why the first commandment given to Israel was that they should have no other gods before him. And it's why Jesus taught that the most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind. Because God is our maker, the maker of heaven and earth, and so we owe him our worship. You and I owe him our worship. By the same token, to fail to worship God is to fail decisively. We aren't used to thinking about religion in terms like this as something that really, really, really matters. But the Bible is crystal clear on this point. Idolatry, which is giving our love and praise 
to anything in this world, including ourselves, or including just the world, the universe. It's not just unfortunate, it is a catastrophe. Because that love and praise that we give belongs to the Lord. It's His. And we cannot withhold it from Him without offending against our own being and the whole structure of life. Of course, human beings do withhold it. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, says the Apostle Paul, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. That is the tragic story of humanity and why we did this and how it will occupy us in the weeks ahead. For now, though, let us just finish by saying this. The Christian faith is about how the praise we owe our Creator can be renewed and fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the one human being who perfectly offered the praise that was owed so that through his death and resurrection, the way might be open for us to offer it again, only now with fresh wonder. The spirit who hovered over the waters at the beginning is given again to make us new in Christ so that we may praise our creator as we were made to. When you put your trust in Jesus, when you praise him and give him glory, you are fulfilling your deepest calling as a human being. You are offering the praise you owe just as a Christian, but as a creature, to the one who said in the beginning and who says even now, let there be. It is what we were made for, the best and most important thing you and I can ever do. So how about we do it? Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.